Uh, Turning your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. And as I said in my prayer, we are looking at the first of the seven letters. So we just finished chapter 1 two weeks ago. And now we're looking at the letters that are contained within this one big letter. Because Revelation, of course, is a letter. It's got a letter greeting. And it's got a letter ending. And within this letter, there are also letters. <laughs> so it's a letter within a letter. So if you've ever seen the movie Inception, like a dream within a dream, you got letters within a letter. But anyway, I will read now from chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars." And has borne and has patience, and uh, for my namesake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, thou, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, well, like I said, last time, two weeks ago, we finished Revelation 1. And in that lesson, we saw a vision of the exalted Christ. So John is here. He talks about how he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's there for his testimony. So he is being persecuted. He is being persecuted for his faith, and he's been put into exile on the Isle of Patmos for his testimony, uh, for his word that he has proclaimed uh, for Christ. And he's there, and this is where he then receives this vision of the exalted Christ. Now, all throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, we see Jesus. He comes, and we, we learn from, like, the prophet Isaiah. He says that his form is... Nothing that we would ever take notice of him. He was, he was a very uncommon person, a very common looking person. We don't know what he looked like, but in his human form, he was nothing special to behold. But here it is the exact opposite. Now when we see him in his exalted resurrected state, he is magnificent. He is projected forth as the exalted risen resurrected Christ who stands there in glory. And John is given this vision. And as he's given this vision, he sees aspects of Jesus Christ. He sees aspects of the exalted Christ's nature that are put then into visionary form. So he's got hair white as wool. He's got a sword that comes out of his mouth. He's got brass feet, all these things. And we talked about how these are representative of things that are true about the resurrected Christ. So the white hair is that he's got infinite wisdom. The flames that come out of his eyes are He's got infinite discernment. He knows all, sees all. His brass feet are used to crush his enemies. So he is, he is a victorious savior. His, the, the tongue, the, the sword that comes out of his mouth is the sword of the word, which is the word of judgment. That is a two-edged sword. It cuts in both ways. It can, it can cut for grace or it can cut for judgment. So all of these things here we see are truths that are represented and and demonstrated in visionary form of the exalted Jesus Christ. 
Now, we also learn that he is, he gets this vision also of Christ holding the seven stars in his hand, walking amongst the seven lampstands. And we saw that this, this vision of Christ amongst the lampstands is the fact that he is the great high priest. He is clothed in a white uh, robe with a golden sash, which is a priestly garment. He is there amongst the lampstands. And we talked about how that lampstand kind of takes us back to the temple, back to the old tabernacle that had a golden lampstand before the Holy of Holies that the priests would go in and tend. Well, here is Jesus among his lampstands, the great high priest, tending to these lampstands, making sure that their light, you know, that their light is shining, that the oil is, is filled and that the wicks are trimmed and all these things. He is maintaining and controlling the church. He walks amongst the churches because we're told that the lampstands represent the churches and the stars represent the angels of the seven churches. And of course, after he gets this vision, he falls down as though dead. We saw that. You know, the, anytime you see anybody in the Bible who gets a vision of the exalted Christ or a vision of God's glory unveiled, they are overwhelmed by the vision. Isaiah fell down as though dead and pronounced a curse upon himself. John sees the risen Christ, falls down as though dead. But then we saw the comforting hand of the Savior go to him. He put his nail-pierced hand on him and said, Fear not, fear not. So he comforts him. He, even though this, this great picture of the exalted Christ in all of his glory and all of his conquering glory comes, he, he cares enough for his poor servant here who has fallen down as though dead and says, Fear not, I have a purpose for you. You need to write some things down. And he tells him, You need to write what you have seen which is this vision in chapter one, the things which are, which is what we're going to start covering now for the next few sessions as we go through these seven letters, chapters two and three are the things that are, and then the things which will be hereafter. So that's chapter four and onward as he gets a vision of the entire church age leading up to the return of Christ at the end of the age. So now as we begin Revelation, as we get into Revelation 2 and 3, we need to keep several things in mind that we have previously written or said about these things. Again, we said these are seven letters to seven actual churches. The church of Ephesus and the others, they were actual churches in Asia or Asia Minor or Turkey. So if you can kind of picture, you know, the Mediterranean and where the, you know, the, the Asia Minor Peninsula comes out, where Turkey is. These cities would be dotted along in there. Uh, in, you know, it's, it's a, it was a, a trade route or a, a path that you can go from one to the other in, in the order that they're written here in the book here. So these are actual churches. These were churches that existed at the time of the writing. So they were churches that were still there at the time of the writing of Revelation. And that the things mentioned in these letters to these churches are real things that these churches were dealing with. So, you know, just because it's in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a book that has a lot of visions and mystery and, and confusion surrounding it. There are still things that are pretty easy to understand. These are letters to seven churches that had real problems that are being outlined here. But we also said that these churches, being seven in number represent the fullness of the church throughout all the church age, seven being the number of perfection. So when we see Jesus Christ walking amongst these seven lampstands, it means that Christ cares for and oversees the entire church, the whole church. 
And of course, furthermore, all throughout church history, we have always seen churches like the Church of Ephesus, the Church of Smyrna, the Church of Pergamos, and the Church of Philadelphia, and so on. These churches represent the churches throughout the age. And there are going to be churches in every point in the church history that are like these seven churches. Maybe not exactly like them, but they may have the problem from this one and the problem from that one. Maybe what they do good is like this one, or maybe what they do good is like that one. But these are all representative of the church we see here. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible, not all Bibles are red-letter, and if you're using the Pew Bibles, they're not red-letter, but if you have a red-letter Bible, you will notice that all of chapter 2 and 3 are red letters, okay? So that just means that everything in these two chapters, these are words that Jesus is directly speaking to his church, okay? Now, normally when the prophets spoke in the name of God, God would say, go to my people and say thus, such, and so on and so forth. And then the prophet would go, thus saith the Lord, and blah, 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 okay? Here, basically, John is like a secretary, (laughs) okay? He's sitting there, and he's taking dictation from Jesus. He says, write these things down, what I want to say to the church. Now, to the church of Ephesus, say this, you know. So, at this point, John is basically just a secretary. Now, when he gets, you know, further on, when we get to chapter 4 and and following, you know, he's then relaying the visions that he's seeing. But these are actual words from Christ, And as we look at each individual letter, we're going to notice that the structure of all seven letters are the same. Okay, so these are, it's almost like you have an ancient first century form letter, and it's got a blank, to the church of blank, and then it says, okay, Ephesus. These are your problems, blank, and then he says, okay, put these problems down. This is what you're doing good, blank, okay, write these things down. So it's like a form letter. They each begin with a greeting to the angel of the church of Ephesus in this case. Each letter contains some description of Jesus that is taken from chapter 1. And that description is going to be very important to the problem that Jesus will diagnose in each church's letter. And so, like in in this case, in the church of Ephesus, we see that Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars and walks amongst the seven lampstands. That's going to play an important role. Jesus will say to all seven churches... I know your works. I know what you are doing. I am the Lord. I am the head of the church. I am the the bridegroom of the church. I know your works. Remember, he's got the eyes of flaming fire. He sees everything. Now, in each letter, you're also going to see some form of commendation and some form of rebuke. This is what you're doing good. Keep it up. This is what you're doing bad? Stop it! (laughs) Each letter is like that, except for a couple. Smyrna and Philadelphia have no rebuke. Okay, he says something good to those two churches, but doesn't have anything bad to say to those two churches. Now, on the flip side, Sardis and Laodicea have no commendation. (laughs) Okay, now if you think, if you remember, Laodicea is the, is the, the lukewarm church, it's the last one, and Sardis is the church that is so compromised. Both of these churches, the, the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ himself, doesn't really have anything good to say, and he's got a lot of rebuke. But as we'll see through these letters, you know, even though he says to the church, this is what you're doing bad, stop it, there are always within each church, there are a few remnant, if you will, you know, a few people that are still trying to hold the faith. And we see that even today, you know, 
how many churches, you know, think of all the denominations that we have in this country that are, have lost the faith. They have gone apostate, okay? Yet, with, even within some of these large denominations, there might be a few churches that are still somewhat faithful, or in some of these churches, you might find a few people that are still faithful, and they're still holding on, still fighting, you know? But, you know, as a whole, though, the church is pretty much lost, so then there's also a promised reward for perseverance. So at the end of each letter, you're going to see Jesus say to him who overcomes, and then he'll pronounce a blessing or some kind of promise to the one who overcomes. And then finally, there is a warning for, uh, that, that he gives a warning. He says, you need to repent or else. It's usually you're going to see something like that in each of these letters. Now, interestingly enough, what is said to any of these seven churches can be said to our church here in Sutton, Nebraska, right? Because Jesus is the one who is walking amongst the seven lampstands. The lampstands, we have a lampstand, okay? Sutton, you know, Emmanuel Reformed Church has a lampstand. And Jesus can even say to us, you know, I know your works. I know what you're doing good. I know what you're doing bad. You stop the bad things, repent. And to the one who overcomes, I will make this promise to you. We are in the church age, so the warnings to these churches are just as applicable today as they were to these churches 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, we need to perk up and hear that. Okay, we need to listen to that too. What's the old commercial uh, with the, the financial guy? You know, I forget, it's like when E.F. Hutton speaks, right? People listen. Well, when Jesus speaks... The church has to listen. These are written to us too. So now as we look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7, we're going to be introduced to the church at Ephesus, the church that has left its first love. Now, like as they said here, the first church we're going to look at is Ephesus. Now, what do we know about Ephesus? So just a little background on the church at Ephesus and the city of Ephesus. So outside of Laodicea, Ephesus is the only other church of the seven that we see mentioned in the book of Acts and in the New Testament letters. Okay, now we know Ephesus plays a big role in the book of Acts because it was one of the churches that Paul went to on his missionary journeys. He wrote a letter there. Uh, Laodicea, we also see mentioned, it's at the end of the book of Colossians, So as Paul is writing the letter to the the church at Colossae, he says at the end, make sure you read the letter that I sent to the church at Laodicea. And then you also read the letter that I sent to them. Now that may raise the question, is is there a letter to the church of Laodicea? If there was, it wasn't preserved in scripture, so the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to preserve it. So we run into Ephesus first in the book of Acts, chapter 18. We don't need to turn there, but that's the first time Paul uh, goes to Ephesus. And he goes there. It's at the end of his second missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem with the offering that he's trying to bring to Jerusalem to, to help ease the suffering of the saints in Jerusalem. And when he's there, uh, he runs into a, or sorry, back up a bit. So that's at the end of his second missionary journey. Uh, when he leaves, in the interim, in, later on in the book of Acts chapter 18, we see a young Alexandrian Jew named Apollos. So Apollos comes into the city of Ephesus. 
And it was said of Apollos that he was mighty in the scripture. So he was, he was a great Bible scholar. He was very learned in the scriptures. And he goes there and he starts debating with the people in Ephesus with his great scripture knowledge. But there's an Ephesian couple there named Aquila and Priscilla. And when they hear him, they take him aside. And it says of them that they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. In other words, Apollos, very learned in the scriptures, but he was missing a few things. So Priscilla and Aquila, who were you know, more than likely discipled by Paul, explained to him things more perfectly. So it wasn't what Apollos knew was bad. It was just a little incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and they instruct them further into the things of God and the things of Jesus Christ. So then Paul comes back on his third missionary journey. He comes back to Ephesus in Acts 19.1. And that's when he starts, he actually establishes the church in Ephesus there in Acts 19. And then he spends three years ministering to them there. So Paul's there. His, his protege, Timothy, served there. We, find, we also learn that the apostle John himself served in the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus, being a major city in Asia, was probably the hub, if you will, of spreading the gospel all throughout Asia Minor. So these seven churches and the others that were founded in the, the continent of Asia, or at least Asia Minor, were all probably started from people from Ephesus, because Ephesus is a, such a major city in Asia Minor that the gospel just probably spread out from there to all the area throughout Asia. Now, Ephesus is a large city, at least in those days it was a large city, a large urban cultural center. So as you would expect, just like any large city, Ephesus had its problems. Just like, you know, think of New York, L.A., Chicago, all these cities, you know, big cultural centers, but they also are centers of great moral decay. You see a lot of immorality going on in there. That's what happens here in Ephesus. So Ephesus was a major Hellenistic city, a center of culture, commerce on the Asian peninsula. But it was also a very <clears throat> idolatrous city. As I mentioned earlier, they had a great um, uh, pagan religion set up there to the Greek goddess Artemis. Okay, in fact, they had the temple to Artemis there in Ephesus. It's one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. Okay, this huge temple in, in Ephesus to the goddess uh, Artemis or Diana, if you are from the if you take from the Roman side, and of course she was the Hellenistic goddess of fertility among other things. So the worship that was going on in Ephesus was temple prostitution, ritual orgies, which have not been uncommon for that type of worship. So Ephesus was a very immoral city. Now it is this, to this ancient church that Jesus commands John to write to, where he says in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So as we said, as we said earlier, uh, each of these letters will begin with a description of Jesus that we see in chapter 1. And here he introduces himself, as we said, as the one who holds the seven stars and who walks amongst the seven lampstands. As we mentioned previously, this speaks of Jesus as the high priest 
who is tending the lampstands. He is the one who is the sovereign over the church. So the message here to the church of Ephesus couldn't be more clear. It is the one who is the head and the king of the church who cares for and maintains the church, who knows all and holds all of the messengers of the church in his right hand. This is the one who is speaking to you. So it doesn't matter what's happening in the world around you. Jesus is in perfect control over his church. He has the messengers in their right hand. He walks amongst their lampstands. He cares for the lampstands. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter what's going on outside of here in Sutton, in Nebraska, in the United States, across the, the oceans. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Jesus is in control of his church. Now comes the commendation. Here's what he says good about them. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered, and you have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So as he does with each of these letters, he begins with the phrase, I know your works. I know you. (laughs) In every way that is possible for Jesus to know his church, for a groom, for a husband to know his bride. He knows the church. And he is in the midst of the lampstand. So he's aware of what's going on in the church. Now, on the one hand, it could be kind of ominous, right? (laughs) If Jesus comes up and he says to Emmanuel Reformed Church, I know your works. You're like, oh, (laughs) what have I been thinking that I don't want Jesus to know what I'm thinking about? Or what have I done that no one else has known that I don't want Jesus to know about? But he knows what the church does, right? He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. But on the other hand, it could be very comforting for the Lord of the church to say, I know your works. I know what you're going through. I know the pain that you're going through. I know the suffering that you're going through. I know the trials you're going through. I know what you have to put up with. He knows our pain. He knows our hurt. He knows our suffering for the sake of the gospel. But also, this knowledge is an absolute knowledge. He doesn't say, I heard about your works, so it's not hearsay. You know, I heard what you're doing. Someone told me, someone told someone, you know, it's like the grapevine or playing the game of telephone. You know, someone says something and then when you get 10 people down the line, it gets completely different. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I heard about your works. It's not guesswork. He's not saying, I think I know your works. No, this is a perfect knowledge. He knows your works. And I know them perfectly because I am the one who has the hair white as wool. I have the flaming eyes. I see, I know all. And in the case of Ephesus, he knows their labor and their patience. Now that word labor, in the Greek, kapos, it speaks of more than just work. It speaks of hard work, of toilsome work, of laborious labor (laughs) to, to... be redundant, okay? It's, it's hard work. The Bible translates this word as labor 13 times, as trouble, 
as weariness, it's hard work. Okay? So he knows your hard work. That's what he's saying. I know your hard, toilsome work. I also know your patience. We've seen that word before, hupomone. It's a word that literally means to remain under something. So if you think of like a big, you know, weightlifter guy who takes the, you know, the barbell and puts it up over his head and he sits there and he's got like, a, you know, 750 pounds over his head and he just sits there and holds it. You know, that's the idea. You're remaining under the weight of the trials. That's patience. Okay, so it's variously translated as patience or endurance or steadfastness. So here Jesus is commending Ephesus for their hard work and their endurance in the work of the gospel and in the kingdom of Christ. He also says he knows their discernment. Their discernment. He says, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. So here Jesus is saying the church of Ephesus was really good at spotting the false teachers, the, the wolves in sheep's clothing. He was the, That church was really discerning. They knew people who were coming up, and they, if they were selling some kind of false gospel, it was like, No, you get that out of here. We do not want a false gospel here. We don't want your false teaching. Get that. Don't call yourself an apostle if you're not. Get out of here. We know. know, So Jesus is like, I know that you have discernment. You have discernment. And these are all good qualities to have in a church. Wonderful qualities to have in a church. The church of Jesus Christ is entrusted with the truth. And as such, she must wield that truth to discern the false teachers and discern the false doctrines that always are trying to creep in. I mean, false doctrine doesn't come in as like the polar opposite of another doctrine. So when you say, you know, Jesus is, is one of the members of the Trinity, you know, typically false you know, teaching doesn't come in and say, no, he's not. It's they sort of equivocate on words. It's sort of like a small erosion to the truth over time, then it becomes a big erosion of the truth, okay? So you think of, you know, two lines that are going parallel, and if you just change the degree just a little bit, okay, they're not too far apart now, but then you keep going that direction before too long, they're, you know, almost diametrically opposed to one another. But nothing has been more harmful to the church overall than being soft on doctrine. Again, we talked about all the churches that are out there, all the denominations that have been throughout the history of of the church that have lost the faith, that have become apostate, that, you know, give in to this teaching or that teaching over time, and they've lost the gospel, and now they're no longer churches anymore. Nothing is more harmful to the church than false doctrine. Jesus referred to false teaching as a leaven. A leaven, so so yeast, something you put into bread, you knead it into the bread, and it spreads throughout the entire loaf. So it starts off as a little bit, and then before too long, it is all over your loaf, and your loaf becomes, well, in this case, leaven, which is, if you're baking bread, that's good. But if you're referring to leaven as false teaching, it permeates through, through the entire church, and now it is filled with false teaching. Again, history is littered with the corpses of dead and dying churches who begun compromising it a little and ended up compromising it all the way. 
That's why John himself says in his first epistle, John, uh, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits or test the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So test the spirits. And again, many believe Paul or John wrote 1 John from Ephesus, the church that was really good at discerning the false spirits. Test the spirits. Paul warned, again, this is Ephesus, Paul warned of wolves in sheep clothing. As he was leaving Ephesus for the last time, he meets with the Ephesian elders, and he tells them, he says, for I know this, this is Acts 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. So Paul is warning the church of Ephesus, he's warning the elders of the church of Ephesus to beware of the wolves that want to come in and also beware of those within the church that rise up and want to teach false doctrine. So terrors without, terrors within, right? So Jesus knows that they are a discerning church and he knows their perseverance. The Ephesians were a tireless bunch. They they persevered, they had patience, they labored for the sake of Christ's name, and they did not become weary over it. Again, how many churches, how many Christians, and how many churches start off strong and then finish with a whimper, right? Think of the when Jesus is, gives the parable of the sower and he talks about the, the guy who goes out sowing seed. And he says, okay, he puts the seed out on the, 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 the stony ground. So it's got a little bit of soil, but underneath it's all rock, right? And he says, what happens? Is, well, the seed sprouts up real quick. So here, you know, you got a church that starts off real quick or a Christian that gets, starts off real quick and they love the Lord. And then all of a sudden, you know, the heat of trials start to come and, and the, the sun withers because it withers away because it has no root. So again, you know, there are many churches that start off strong. Many Christians start off strong but then they ultimately fail and they fall into comfortable patterns. But here the Ephesian church was an undaunted champion of orthodoxy, tirelessly laboring for the truth of the gospel. And that is a great quality to have in a church. But, but, now, I know I've said this before. I said, but is my favorite word in the Bible because usually after but, something good happens. Well, here, unfortunately, something bad is happening. So this, this is a bad but. This is not a good but. This is a bad but in the Bible. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So to paraphrase the righteous brothers, the Ephesians had lost that loving feeling. <laughs> Actually, worse, they left that loving feeling. Okay, that's different. There's a difference to that. And that word, nevertheless, indicates that as good as the Ephesian church was, they had a fatal flaw. They had something in within that church that if they did not correct, it was going to destroy the church. In fact, in other words, there's no balancing out the good with the bad here when you have a fatal flaw. It doesn't matter what they were doing that was good and what they were doing was very good their discernment, their tireless labor for the truth, they had a fatal flaw. And if they didn't correct that fatal flaw, it didn't matter what they were doing that was good. 
And that fatal flaw is that they had left their first love. And that word left, aphiami, is a very interesting word. Uh, it is, is also used, uh, the word is also used, translated in the Bible, as the word forgiveness. So you've got leaving and forgiveness. It kind of carries those, those meanings there. It's translated 52 times as leave, 47 times as forgive, uh, 14 times as permit or to allow to happen. And it means to either send away, to permit, or to leave. But it denotes a deliberate action. That's the point. It denotes a deliberate action. They didn't lose the love. It wasn't like they were going along strong and all of a sudden they realized, you know, we kind of lost love here along the way. So, does anybody remember what happened to love? Did we lose it back at the last truck stop? I'm not sure. Where's the love? No, no, they left it. It's a deliberate action. They left their love. They forsook it. They walked away from it. Now, what is meant by first love? You have left your first love. Who here? Th- let's take some. Let's take some guesses here. Who think? What's the first love? Jesus. Okay. Yeah, Christ, Jesus. Just use the Sunday school answer. You're going to be right more often than not. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, the f- Christian's first love is Jesus Christ. Because what is the first and greatest commandment that Jesus tells the people when they ask him? Love your, yeah, love the Lord your God and love others as yourselves. So the first and then the second is like unto it. So leaving this first love will also trickle down into a lack of love for others as well. So when you leave your love for Christ and your love for God, it's also going to start reflecting in your love for people in the church. You know, think about it. If a person does not have a pronounced love for God and his son, Jesus Christ, there probably isn't going to be an overt love for your fellow human being. It, it's, those two go hand in hand. Now, does it surprise you that a, such a hardworking and discerning church as the church of Ephesus would have a love problem? <laughs> what is... Yeah, my thought is, what is the biggest danger for churches that are strong in their doctrinal purity? They become cold and loveless. They're, they become so focused on the truth that they, that they lose sight of, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? That's, that's actually quite common, okay, in churches. Churches that are very doctrinally pure have a hard time balancing that purity with love. Because sometimes they see love as compromising. And we're going to see this because one of the other churches is probably the church that loves too much. Okay? And they, they, they've compromised everything. So the, the, the churches that are strong in doctrinal purity see that. And they say, well, we don't want to be that. So then they overcompensate to the other direction and say, well, we need to be, you know, dogmatic. No exceptions. You will follow the rules. This is what we do. You will wear your suit and tie. You didn't wear a tie today. You're excommunicating. You know, I mean, you know, that's, that's a trivial example. But the point is, sometimes these churches are so much into doctrinal purity, they can lose their first love. And they can lose then that love for others as well. They become a loveless church. And no one wants to go to a loveless church. You don't want to go to a church that compromises the truth. That's for sure. But you certainly don't want to be stuck in a church where there's just no love for the person in the pew. 
I mean, we're all fallen sinners, right? <laughs> we, you know, what's, you know, what's the one requirement to come into the church? You have to be a broken down wreck of a sinner. That's the one requirement. Because if you're a perfect person, then you don't need the church. <laughs> Problem is there are no other perfect people than, than Jesus Christ. And if you think you're perfect, well, okay, you might need someone to slap you upside the head with a two-by-four of truth, I think. But, you know, <laughs> but anyway, biggest danger for churches that are doctrinally pure is that they could lose or leave their first love. So then in verse 5, after pointing out the problem, Jesus then gives them a stern warning. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, you remember when I said that in, you know, it pulls images from chapter 1 to describe Jesus to each of the churches. And for Ephesus, it was the, the image of Jesus who was walking amongst the lampstands, the sovereign over the church. His warning to them is, if you don't change your ways... I am going to take your lampstand away. You will cease to be a church if you do not repent. Now note there at first that call to remember, that first word there, remember. This call to remember, think of this in terms of a marriage relationship. When the love grows cold, you need to remember what it was that drew you two together in the first place. In the case of the church, they need to remember what it was that drew them to Christ in the first place. What made you come to the church? What made you fall in love with Jesus Christ? Remember that. Remember that. So Jesus then calls them to repent. Repent and do the first works. The church has left its first love and it got busy doing other good and very good things. But now Jesus tells them, Repent and do the first works. Go back to your first love. Go back to your first love. How many people here remember the story of Martha and Mary that's found in Luke chapter 10? You know that story with Martha and Mary? So in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is staying with Martha and Mary. And Martha, she's the busy person. She's the person who can't stop working. So she's in the kitchen. She's working up a storm, doing all kinds of things, preparing for them, for the, the guests that are there. And Mary, her sister, is said she is sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word that he is speaking. And Martha is there working, working, working. And she's like, Jesus, tell my sister to get off her lazy butt and start working. I'm doing everything here by myself. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled over many, many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. That was Ephesus. So Martha is Ephesus. (laughs) They're busy, busy, busy doing work, 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 but they forgot that Jesus is there in the room with them. And just to sit there and love the Lord and listen to the Lord like Mary was doing. They need to repent and do the first works. 
Now, this isn't an either or, it's a both and. Okay, so it's not like, okay, stop striving after doctrinal purity now and let's just love the Lord. Because how can you love the Lord if you're not being doctrinally pure? I mean, that's part of it, right? That's part of it is to be doctrinally pure. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, how are you going to keep the commandments if you're not doing them rightly, if you're not studying them correctly? So correct doctrine is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. You've got to do both and. So keep striving and working for doctrinal purity and discernment and also do the first works of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then there is the or else. If they don't, Repent. If they don't go back to their first love, then the one who walks amongst the lampstands uh, with the seven stars in his hand is he will come in and he will remove your lampstand from its place. If a lamp refuses to give its light, it needs to be replaced. It needs to be changed out. It needs to be taken away and replaced. If a church doesn't reflect a healthy love for Christ, and its people, they will cease being a church. And this is a dire warning indeed. I mean, this is, this is one of the most stern warnings in here. I will remove your church. You will cease being a church. But even in the midst of this dire warning, the Lord can still say something good about them. In Revelation 2, 6 here, he says, but you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? <laughs> that should be the question on everyone's lips here. Who are the Nicolaitans? I wish I could tell you. No one really knows. The problem is no one really knows who the Nicolaitans are. There's guesses and there's, you can make an educated guess. In fact, if you just look, it could be on the next page. You may need to flip a page. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 15, to the church in Pergamos, he's telling this church, he says, uh, in verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So the problem is, in Ephesus, they hate the, the work of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus is like, I hate that too. That's good. To the church in Pergamos, it's like, no, you're tolerating people who love the work of the Nicolaitans, which work I also hate. Again, what's the, <laughs> what, what, who are the Nicolaitans and you know, what's going on here? Well, if you look at the context, it would seem that this, whatever the Nicolaitans are, they seem to be a cult that practices gross idolatry and sexual immorality. And you can kind of draw that from the context of this letter here in verses 12 through 17. What the problem of what that church was doing was they were tolerating this. And one of those things, some of those things were idolatry and um, sexual immorality. Now, what does this have to do with Ephesus? Well, if their problem was leaving their first love, Jesus is commending them on the fact that at least they don't tolerate some loosey-goosey form of love that the Church of Pergamos is guilty of. So, you know, again, remember we were talking about those extremes where it's like, you know, the, some churches are all love, 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 and no truth. So they tolerate all kinds of things. And then the churches, which are all truth, 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 no love, they're harsh and 
you know, uh, and whatever. So he's like, well, at least you're not like that. You're not like these people who are tolerating all kinds of gross examples of love. You're, you're, you know, but you need to go back to a real, true gospel love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verse 7, Jesus closes with a command to hear and a promise to the one who overcomes, which again is common to all the letters. He says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, to him I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is a common phrase that Jesus says, to he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not saying, well, if you've got ears... Okay, you can hear what I'm saying. I mean, that's that much is obvious. Okay, what he's saying, though, is you need to hear with ears of faith. You need to hear what I'm saying and then abide by it. You need to listen to it. You need to obey it. This is a call to all true Christians in the church to hear Jesus' warning and to heed his words. And this is a command to all the churches. Notice that in church set, in verse 7 here, it is, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Not just the church of Ephesus, but to the churches. It's plural. This is a command to all the churches. It's a command to all the churches. So even though what we see here in Revelation 2, 1 through 7 is specific to Ephesus, it is also a command that is applied to all of the churches. Again, remember we said, these letters are specific to these churches, but they're also applicable to the entire church. That includes us here, Manual Reform Church, Sutton, Nebraska, October 18, 2020. We need to hear this. And then to the one who hears and overcomes, which is, in, anybody here like Nike shoes? Or if you've ever worn, maybe, maybe you're like, well, I don't like them because they make them in Chinese sweatshops. Okay. Have you ever worn Nike shoes ever in your, I have, okay. The word Nike is the Greek word for victory and the overcomer is, is, is taken from that. So it's nikao. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a, a victorious one and one who overcomes. It's, you know, we get the word Nike from it. So the one who overcomes, Jesus will give to that one the privilege to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And again, this is a promise to the whole church, not to, just to the church of Ephesus. So the one who perseveres, the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious will be granted access to the tree of life. And that's a tree we haven't seen since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And we're expelled from the garden. We're prevented from going back. In fact, when you know, God is speaking, you, know, you get this little inter-Trinitarian conversation. We must keep them out of the garden lest he, you know, the man reaches out his hand and takes from the tree of life. So the tree of life was barred from Adam and Eve because of their sin. And humanity then lost access, lost privileges to the tree of life. Well, Jesus is saying here, to the one who overcomes... You're going to get your privileges back. You're going to get the privileges to go back and to eat of the tree of life. And this is nothing less than heavenly or spiritual life that we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, that word life, zoe, is, it's not just, it doesn't speak of a quantity of life when it says eternal life. It's a quality of life. This is the spiritual life, the glorious life that we get when Christ returns and gives life to all 
people. This is the life he's speaking of, this victorious, spiritual, uh, Christian, uh, glorious life. Again, it's a quality of life, not a quantity of life. Well, that's the first of the seven letters to the churches. Ephesus had a lot going for it. I mean, would that more churches were concerned with doctrinal purity? Would that more churches were more discerning of error in their midst? And would that more churches were tireless laborers for the name of Christ and his kingdom? However, leaving our first love is a common error, as we said, of churches that stress doctrinal purity. And if we here as a church are so busy rooting out every single potential error in doctrine, if we become heresy hunters, okay, that sounds like a good reality TV show, right? Now on A&E, heresy hunters. But if we become heresy hunters, we're going to lose light of the goal, which is to have a love for Christ and love for others as well. And unfortunately, that's what happened to Ephesus. They lost their first love. They left their first love. Their lampstand was removed. There's no church there anymore. There was a church there, and it was a great church. It was a church that Paul ministered to. It was a church that Timothy ministered to. It was a church that John ministered to. Had a lot going for it. But they left their first love, and their lampstand was removed. Jesus makes no idle threats, beloved. I'm going to remove your lampstand if you do not come back to your first love. And he did remove the lampstand. Now, next time, which will be in two weeks, November 1st, we will look at the church of Smyrna, which is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11.